Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business and more. My guest today is Edison Redness III, founder of Native Futures and Native Dreams. Our conversation is being recorded by Zoom and Edison joined me as he drove among the sandhills in Nebraska. Edison Redness III is a member of the Ogallala Sioux Nation. After pivotal experiences in his life, culminating in serving a prison term, Edison learned a growing appreciation for his rich cultural heritage and traditions, which led to him founding Native Futures in 2013. Native Futures is a for-profit entity dedicated to supporting the flourishing of Native peoples and is the only Native-owned and operated business in Nebraska's panhandle. As well as being an entrepreneur, Edison is a keen lacrosse player. Welcome to the show. Hello. Yeah, thank you. I feel like we kind of have to start at the beginning with you. And so I, I want to ask if you wouldn't mind sharing, you know, starting from the beginning, what was your childhood like? My, my childhood was great. My, my mom and dad, they were together. Um, I was a honor roll student, straight A student from, you know, pretty much kindergarten up until eighth grade. You know, I had my mom there. I had my dad there. We went to powwows. You know, my dad took me around to all of these places with him, you know, really immersing me in the culture for as much as he could or for what he could do. You know, so, so my childhood was, was fairly normal. I, I did the right things. You know, I, I hung out with the right people. I was, I was on a really good track. And then when I was going into my eighth grade year, um, that's when I found out that my mom and dad were getting a divorce. So things went sideways and went hectic for me. So stopped going to school, started getting into trouble. Um, you know, I, spent, I spent my 15th, my 16th, and my 17th birthdays in juvenile detention centers in YRTCK, which is a youth rehabilitation treatment center in Kearney, Nebraska. You know, so after my parents divorced, it was, it was really hard for me. I got into a lot of trouble, got into a lot of juvenile felonies. Um, I was way behind in school. But luckily, I, I was able to utilize some help from the treatment centers and especially the educational help and able to, I was able to get back on track. So I, I graduated in 2002. I was supposed to graduate in 2001, but because I was in trouble and because of educational requirements, I was short only a half a credit, but I, I wasn't able to graduate. So I went back for an extra semester, and at the end of semester, the principal was trying to give me my diploma then and there in his office, but I told him, no, I, that I did this extra work, that I will rather wait until May, and I want to walk and get my diploma because I and the first person in my family to graduate high school. And, and that, was, that, that was a big deal for me. So I did that, and, and things were going great for a bit. You know, I, I, met, I met a girl, we, we had a daughter, um, and, you know, I, was, I wasn't into drugs very much, you know, the occasional marijuana here and there, but then one, one day I, I was introduced to cocaine and I got hooked. And I wasn't, I wasn't a big user, you know, 
so much. But once I got hooked, within, within a three-month span, my entire life fell apart. I started using it and then started spending all of my money on bills to buy it and then eventually started dealing it. So w- once I stopped, um, you know, and, and realized that I can't be doing this, that, that my life has come to a bottom, um, it was already too late. I, I had already gotten into trouble. I didn't know this then. But a few months after I stopped, I was arrested for distribution of cocaine here in Alliance in my hometown. And I was sentenced to three, I mean, not sorry, six to 10 years for um, one count of distribution of cocaine. And, and when, I, when I get to prison and I hear the other prisoners talk, you know, there, there were some prisoners in there who had, you know, double my charges plus gun charges plus other charges that got less time than I did. And, and that, that almost kind of sh- tells you or shows you how different things are for Native Americans in the panhandle. I want to invite you, if, if you would, to talk about how you changed um, from that period where you had these um, experiences from when you went in uh, and your attitudes and mindsets then to the time that you returned as a citizen. I went into prison not knowing what was going to happen knowing that things are different, that I'm not around my family, that I'm going to be away from my family for a long time. So, I mean, I guess you could say I went into prison with an open mind, if, if that would be the right thing to say. But, you know, deep down, I've, I've always known what was right and wrong because I got that instilled into me when I was, a younger, when I was young, when my parents were still together. I always knew what I had to do. But in those critical times, in those moments, those teenage years, I had no male figures in my life telling me, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what Native men are supposed to be until I went to prison. And I, I meet these people, these older Native men who, are, who have been there for years, who are spiritual, who are culturally connected. And a lot of these men were lifers. As I went through prison, I was in Omaha Correctional Center. I was in Tecumseh um, State Institution. So being in prison around those Native men was very influential because my father, he, he wasn't there. I mean, he, he was there, but you know, he would send me five or 10 bucks every once in a while, but I didn't have that male figure in my life like I needed to until I got to prison. So they taught me what I was supposed to do and be as a native man. They taught me the virtues and the values I was supposed to carry with me that I have to carry with me in order for our people to thrive, to survive. Those virtues like bravery and generosity, wisdom and fortitude and compassion and love. It it takes a lot of bravery to step out of that norm of drinking and drinking and drinking and put yourself out there as a person who wants to help. Because as soon as I did that, I have had people criticize me for being too good or acting better or, you know, being criticized for having white supporters or, or anything like that. You know, when in reality, I'm just trying to make myself better. I'm just trying to live up to my potential, to what I'm supposed to be doing as a native man. And 
you know, with, with me being so young, there are others, there are elders in our communities who should be doing this stuff, who have way more knowledge than I do, who should be giving back that knowledge. But instead, they're the ones who aren't doing these things, who aren't living up to their potential, who aren't living up to what they're supposed to be. Rather, they criticize and rather they are stuck in their own ways. I, I was taught not to give up, not to give in because that's what we're supposed to do. That's what a man is supposed to do. We're supposed to be ready. We're supposed to be prepared. We're supposed to provide for our family. We're supposed to protect our people. And that's, that's what we're trying to build up here with Native Futures. Could you then perhaps explain how you were motivated into founding Native Futures and what Native Futures is and what it does? My motivation is I am, I am constantly seeking redemption. And what I mean is for that short amount of time where I was selling drugs, where I was dealing cocaine and methamphetamine and weed, I don't know how many lives I've impacted. I don't know how many families I had a negative impact on. I mean, there are kids today that I see who are teenagers now who were just little babies back then who weren't even born back then when I was dealing, when I was taking money from their parents. And I don't know if that was rent money or diapers or food or anything, but I was taking it. And I don't know from me taking that money what type of course I set their life on. You know, maybe hadn't I sold them those, those drugs at one time that maybe they would have straightened up their life. Or maybe these kids' lives would have been better. You know, so ev every day, personally, when I go out, when I am on the job or when I'm trying to help families or when I'm teaching lacrosse or when I'm at the after-school program, I am constantly seeking that redemption since I still feel that way, that my job isn't done. That I, I haven't done what I'm supposed to do yet. That I haven't, haven't finished yet because I still feel this way. So personally, that's, that's, what I, that, that's what drives me, is that one day I'm going to feel better. I'm going to feel not as bad about what I did in the past. That I'm going to have that redemption. So Native Futures is a business where every day we're building up. We're trying to help people build up lives. As far as the build business goes, we have, we have contracts with different organizations, and, and that's how we bring in our funding. We don't, we don't rely on grant funding or anything like that. 
I go out, we make our money, and after the bills are paid, after the house and the kids are taken care of, everything that we make goes back into the business. 100%. And, and, that's, and that's the way it thrives, and that's the way it works. What Native Futures does is we, we give back, whatever we can, however we can. You know, we are, we are that one organization that Native Americans, and not just Natives, but everybody knows that, you know, we're here to help, that, that we are doing great things in the community. What kind of services and programs are you providing? We hold several contracts with different organizations. Um, our biggest one right now is we contract with Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services the child protection services. So we do parenting time, supervised visitation. We do transportation. We do family services. And we are the only Native American provider here in the Panhandle. So we get referred the Native American cases, which is great. Because, you know, let, let's say, for instance, we take a non-Native going into a Native American's home. Now, there are, there are a lot of Natives who live comfortably with their house being cluttered with their house having a lot of stuff, you know, not, not so much dirty, but cluttered. And, you know, if, if it were a non-native going into that situation, they, they would see the house as dirty. They, they would see the house as ran down. But, you know, these people are, are people are comfortable living that way. That's not to say that the kids aren't taken care of or that the house isn't clean or anything like that. It's just they've grown comfortable with that. So for us being Native Americans as a provider for these services, we come in with the understanding that this is how it is. So we're able to get past that and help these families. Um, we also contract with District 12 Probation for juvenile services. So family support services, day reporting, evening reporting. We work alongside with the Santee Sioux Nation for their Society of Care program and their, for their Community Response program. Um, we, I, I am the diversion officer for Boxview County, meaning first-time offenders, juveniles, whether it's an MIP or a traffic citation or disturbing the peace, they come to us and they go through our diversion program. And after they complete their, their courses, their sessions, whatever they were initially charged with, they don't get charged with that anymore. We work with Nebraska Appleseed for their get out the vote campaign. And right now for their census awareness work, we, we do a lot of stuff on, on top of our, our lacrosse program that we have going, on top of our after-school programs, and, and on top of our other offices that we have in, in Gordon right now. You were telling me then about being an entrepreneur and that you deliberately set up Native Futures as a for-profit organization. What is your thinking behind pursuing the mission of Native Futures as an entrepreneur and in terms of a for-profit structure? So our mission for Native Futures is we are for the people. And we set this up as a for-profit because of my experience with the Shattered Native American Center, the nonprofit that I worked for. And, and, and this goes for almost any Native nonprofit out there, is that when, when there's a nonprofit collecting funds or soliciting funds for Native Americans, there is always the population thinking, well, these, these people are getting money for Native Americans, Native money. So then there's always that mindset of people embezzling money, people taking money. And it, it does happen. You know, honestly, it does happen in this area where a lot of for-profits are taking money for personal reasons and not using it for what it's intended. 
So I set up the for-profit to squash all of that so that I don't have to deal with any of that. So to where I'm not being accused of taking Indian money or Native American money and using it for myself so that I can make it perfectly clear that the money we get is based off of my work. That if I don't work, we don't get paid. And if we don't get paid, then there isn't a Native Futures at all. And, and being an entrepreneur, Native Futures is just one of the many businesses that we have. So we, we have Native Futures, but at the same time, my wife has a food trailer and we have a bike taxi fleet. We have, we have seven bike taxis that we use and, and we call it war bonnet transportation. And it's named after a man who lived in Alliance who rode his bike everywhere. Everybody knew him. He was a drunk, but he was a kind hearted drunk. He helped everybody out. He loved everybody. He wanted the best for everybody. And, and when he died, you know, I wanted to honor him because he was, he wasn't a family member, but he was a part of our family. He was with us. So I wanted to honor him for that. So we named it Warbonnet Transportation after Larry Warbonnet. People called him Rev. And the idea with that is to help low-income families who don't have cars to make it to appointments, to make it to the stores, or wherever they can get. And at the same time, we can employ people who really can't get jobs or who are having a tough time to find a job. You know, let, let's say we have, we have a Native American male who's having a tough time finding a job. We can say, hey, here's a bike. Go out, make your fares, make some money, and be that provider for your family. You know, make yourself feel good. Go home. And, you know, they might only make 30 or 40 bucks in a day, but still, that's better than nothing. And still, they're able to take those 30, 40 bucks home and maybe buy some food, maybe buy some, some supplies or whatever they may need. But it gives them that sense of being a man, being a provider, and, and it helps them. So we have Native Futures. My wife has Sand Hill Sandwiches, her food trailer. We have War Bonnet Transportation. We also started a, a corporation. We're, we're not a 501c3, but we are a corporation called Native Dreams. Um, we, don't, we don't do anything with that. We just, we just have it set up to where if we're ever at a point to where we want to do something bigger, that we can. But as of right now, Native Dreams is just sitting there not doing anything. Um, another thing that we have is we own the Sand Hills Drive-In Theater here in Alliance, Nebraska. So we, we show movies, we help families. We wanted to buy the Sand Hills Drive-In because of our own family experiences. We as a family, we have movie nights. So we'll get together, we'll, we'll get the popcorn, we'll get drinks, we'll get snacks, and we'll sit down and we'll watch a movie together as a family. Or we'll, we'll start an entire movie series, like the Harry Potter movies or the Star Wars series, and we'll watch every single one of those movies and do that as a family. And when we do that, you know, it, it's something that our kids look forward to. It's something that we as parents look forward to. But it gives us that time together and it builds that bond. So we bought the Sand Hills Drive-In wanting to give family that, families that same experience. Dancing through the world alone lately mm. We've been trying just to make it through everything mm. I feel so out of place Feel so, feel so out of place right here 
I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Edison Redness III, founder of Native Futures and Native Dreams. Our conversation is being recorded by Zoom, and Edison joined me as he drove among the sandhills in Nebraska. I feel so out of place, feel so, feel so out of place right now. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that some of your peers leveled pejorative accusations at you about being thinking you were better than others and and i'm wondering if just generally at large if you feel any pressure greater than i would experience as a as a white man but you feel any pressure somehow to be a perfect role model um an ideal illustration of a successful native person yes i do you know, and, and, that, and that pressure isn't coming from these people who criticize me. That pressure is coming from these kids that I work with. I am sober. I am drug and alcohol free. I don't smoke cigarettes because it would be hypocritical of me to tell these kids, to tell these families, hey, don't drink. But then, you know, me going to, me, me go to the bars on the weekends. You know, I, I can't tell a kid, don't do drugs if I'm doing drugs or stop smoking if I'm smoking myself. You know, so there's, there is that pressure, but it's, it's a different type of pressure. It's, it's, it's almost like, yes, I, I do have to be perfect, but not for these adults, not for these criticizers. I have to be perfect for these kids. You know, and, and I have to show these kids what it's, what it's like or what they're supposed to be like as a Native American person. So you've spoken about the program and the businesses, as it were, that Native Futures and your other business entities are doing. What about what you are doing and teaching in terms of the cultural heritage that you yourself um, found to be, I think, really quite life-changing? So, so how does that show up in what you're doing for your community and your people? Yeah, so that, the, the culture, anything, these kids soak it in like a sponge. They are <laughs> not getting it at home. They are not getting it in school. So w- when we come to them with things like language courses or songs or history or even coloring sheets, they, they soak it in. And they are at the right age to do it. They, they, they are the right age developmentally to be able to do these things. And, and they love it. They enjoy it. And it, it, it's one of the things that helps our business. It's, it's the thing that sets us, sets us apart because there are other organizations doing the same type of work that we're doing, trying to help, but they don't bring in that cultural aspect. And, and we're teaching these kids to live the old way, to also live in this new life because we can't 
completely go back to the old ways because that's that that can't work especially with how everything is set up today's world but we teach our kids to learn these ways but at the same time they have to master this new world that we're living in they they have to be the best in this new world that we're living in so go out you know experience life you know go to school learn a trade be the best in that but come home and help us come home and give back come home and and do what we're doing as a business i want to share um something that i that i read um a little while ago and it feels topical now especially so the black lives matter movement has brought a sharper focus on racial inequity in america and in his 1963 book the fire next time james baldwin wrote that even after 100 years of their technical emancipation black people remained the most despised creature in america with the possible exception of the american indian which is obviously a damning observation from someone as acutely observant as james baldwin and and i'm wondering in this moment if you have any observations on racial inequity in this time especially as encountered by native peoples and is this a turning point do you think for you and them yes i i have i have a lot of thoughts on that you know but i i can i can only speak to what i'm involved with locally here you know we've been we've been doing what we're doing since i got out of prison in 2008 you know we we took a step up in 2012 i mean 2013 after we began native futures and here in alliance nebraska there there is a big divide here socially racially you know economically when it comes to native americans and non-natives in this town i mean just less than less than 50 years ago there was south alliance and there was the railroad tracks and there was a, there's an underpass going into south alliance and they used to have patrols going over that bridge to make sure that the indians didn't cross that bridge and come into alliance but you know it's still alliance but they didn't cross the bridge and come into town to where all the non-natives live you know i i see that here and i see the stories and i remember living here since 2012 we have come a long way socially i mean for for myself i'm um i'm i'm on the i'm on the school board here in alliance nebraska i'm i'm the first native american to be voted into public office here in the panhandle and that's a big thing and how that came about was i wanted to run so i talked to my wife and she encouraged me to do it Before this though I was trying to identify native american candidates who can do this who could take a public office and really do well in it so I was out searching here in town of who can I find talking to natives about let's let's do this let let's get involved but nobody wanted to do it so I put my name in for it but at the very end on the closing day of be of um putting your name in the hat there was this other native woman who stepped up to to do it so um when it came time there there were two natives in there myself and this other native lady named Christy Worldwinhorse and i i grew up with Christy and and she's just as passionate and dedicated with the stuff that i am 
So we continued on because I thought that, you know, what, what would be better than one native to get voted in would be two natives to be voted in. So we go on and then come October, there was a public forum at the high school here where they asked ask a lot of questions of us. And out of that public forum, you know, I just, I just saw the passion that Christy had for becoming a school board member, the changes she wants to implement for our native kids. So I thought it would be selfish of me with everything that I already have going on to want to be on the school board too and to potentially take away this woman's opportunity to be on the school board. So a few weeks before the election, I dropped out of the race. I, I made a public statement. I was on social media. I was on the radio. And I endorsed Christy Worldwind Horse for school board. So come election time, you know, people were upset with me saying, well, I had already voted for you and I already did my mail-in ballot and voted for you. Why are you dropping out? You know, things like that. But I, I remained adamant that I, I had to drop out. So come election time, Monday, the next morning, I wake up. And even though I had dropped out of the race, I was still voted in with a third of the votes. So I was, you know, I was voted in third place and there was only three seats available. So I was voted in third. There was this other non-native lady. She was voted in with a fourth. And then Christy came in with a fifth of the votes. So had I dropped out of the race, I mean, I mean had, I, had I continued to say no, then this, this fourth place winner, this non-native would have gone in and there would, there would have been no natives on the school board. So even though I dropped out, I was voted in any, anyway. And, you know, me being for the people, I decided to take the position of the school board. So a story like that shows, and shows you just how far we have come socially in six years. Here in, here in Alliance, Nebraska, to where we're at a point where even though I, I drop out of the race, people see the good that we're doing with Native Futures, see the impact that we're having here in the Panhandle, and vote for me anyway. So tell me about lacrosse then, because that was, that's an intriguing part of your bio. 
um, what is lacrosse? Uh, I'm sure many people aren't familiar with the game. What is lacrosse, and um, why why do you love it so much? Right. So I didn't I didn't know anything about lacrosse until about 2012. About it was about 2000. Yeah, 2012 when we went to a camp. And these people were explaining these these native people were explaining uh, how it, it used to be you know how it was originally a Native American game for the natives on the eastern side and the the history behind it they they called it creators game they played for the creator and only the only the men would play it. the the warriors would play it and sometimes they would play it as a substitute to war instead of going out and killing each other. Like we would do, like our tribes would here in this side, we would go out on war parties to essentially kill anyone who came up against us on that. But the Eastern tribes would play creator's game and the loser would lose whatever they were, you know, the conflict was about. You know, and, and sometimes they would use it as a betting game too. Like if this tribe had an overabundance of a certain item, they would bet their overabundance against whatever tribe had an overabundance of and the loser would get it but the people who played again like i said were the warriors they were the men the providers the protectors so when we were able to start that here i i jumped on it because i i knew that it was something that the kids would latch on to that the kids would love and it, it was some it was something that the kids would be able to call their own because there aren't a lot of many a lot of sports here in the alliance where natives are involved with and I'll speak to that on the social level. You know, here in Alliance, there, like I said, there are different social classes with Native Americans primarily being at the lower end. So if we have this set of people, you know, the, we'll say like the mayor and chamber of commerce leaders and bank heads and people like that. And what happens here in Alliance is that people will set and, and, and will say, hey, we're gonna have a community event at the country club and we're going to invite everybody in, in the community. So the whites, the blacks, the natives, the Mexicans, everybody, we're going to invite everyone. We're not going to, going to discriminate. But then they charge, you know, 50 bucks a plate. Now, if, if it's a native family, 50 bucks a plate, nobody's going to pay for that. Because you could buy almost a week's worth of food, depending on your family size with that. Or you could pay a bill with that rather than go and spend it on a single plate of food. So it, there's just a big divide where these native kids aren't hanging out with these other kids, these richer kids, the poor kids aren't hanging out with the rich kids. And that goes on. And that, and that, and that happens all the time here in Alliance. So one great thing about lacrosse of the many great things about it is that it bridges that divide. Lacrosse, when we play, we have, we have kids who come from rich families, who, whose parents are railroaders or whose parents, you know, are doing this, you know, they're on that, they're on that upper rung as far as socially. And we have, we have, of course, we have our native kids who are living in poverty. But, but when we play lacrosse, it is the only time ever in this town where these two kids, where these two social classes come together and play. You won't, you won't find that in school because these kids aren't hanging out with these kids in high school or middle school or elementary school. You won't find that with the parents because the parents aren't congregating or hanging out with each other. You won't find that on the streets. Nowhere in this community are these social classes coming together except for the lacrosse fields. And it's great because it gives the opportunity for these kids to get to know each other, 
to really dismantle these stereotypes that they may, may have heard about each other, uh, stereotypes about rich kids or stereotypes about the poor kids, and get to know each other. And, 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 and it is great to see that. And it's great to see these kids, you know, wave to each other or see each other and enjoy spending time with each other because that's the only time they get it. When they go home, it's again, it's, it's back. It's back to the way it is. It's back to rich and poor, but not when they're at lacrosse. When they're on that playing field, everybody's equal. Everybody treats each other the same and everybody encourages each other. That, that, that's great to see. Like even, even the little kids, even the four and five-year-olds, when they're out there playing with the big high school kids, high school kids are out there letting them get the balls, letting them hit them, letting them score goals, building them up. And that's, and like I said, that, that's the one and only time that something like that happens in this community where these social classes meet and respect each other and want to encourage each other. The other great thing about lacrosse is that our kids they are great at it. It's, it's a cultural game. You know, for our tribe here, we had stick games too for our tribe. So to bring back this stick game is to bring back the culture for these kids and our native kids take to it quickly. They're quick learners. And lacrosse, my hope with our lacrosse program is that we get these kids when they're in elementary school and we teach them when they're in middle school. And when they're in high school, we start getting them out there. We start making videos and sending them out to coaches and college recruiters because our kids have a better chance of getting a lacrosse scholarship than they do a football or a volleyball or a basketball scholarship. So I'm hoping to create a lacrosse to college pipeline with this program. And of course, if these kids want college scholarships, then they're going to have to have the grades for it. So it's encouraging in that sense. And these kids know that if they want to play in college that they have to have good grades. So our kids are trying to be better. They want to be better. And again, it's giving them that hope that they can do this, that, that they can get out of this, this lifestyle, that they can break this lifestyle, be better. You know, not, not better than, than everyone else, but better than who they used to be. I'm wondering if you're also seeing on the other side greater recognition in the broader society of the non-native society that native traditions and native beliefs are more relevant today than they've ever realized they were and so i'm wondering if you if you feel as if you're equally shaping and seeing a change in appreciation of non-native society for native beliefs and traditions yes we are i can see it all the time we are showing ourselves for what we are. You know, I had mentioned that there aren't, aren't many things going on for natives here, but the little things that we're doing, the, the little things that the natives are involved in, they are doing great at, and people recognize it. You know, um, my children are involved with the local sports clubs on top of lacrosse, like the, the soccers and the baseballs, but we're also getting other native kids involved with these two, native kids who before haven't been involved, and they are doing great. And the people see that. The parents see these kids. And, and, and the community sees what we're doing. You know, when, when we hold events or, or when we do free things or, you know, like, like free events or, or a free movie night out at the drive-in, you know, people see these things and they appreciate that type of stuff. People see our kids doing these great things and they appreciate that. But, you know, our, our work is far from done because our kids are still struggling, like in school. And with me being on the school board, 
I volunteered to be a part of the alternative school board. Just last year, our alternative school here in Alliance, Nebraska can hold 31 students maximum. And of those 30 high, 31 high school students, 17 of those were Native Americans. So something is going on within the school system and something is going on at home that prevents our kids from, you know, thriving within a school system. Being, being part of that school system, something doesn't help. What are your hopes for the future? What are your hopes for your own personal future? And what are your hopes for Native Futures and its goals? You know, I will, I will tell you that I am, I am three years away from retirement. That I have, I have three more years to build up Native Futures in a way to where it's self-sustaining. I, I have three years to find kids to continue this work my my hope is that the business thrives and continues to grow my my hope is that these kids will take over and do the work that i'm doing so then it will allow me to become a, just just a movie projectionist you know i i want someone to come in and i want someone to take over and continue this you know i i, I see native futures as growing and becoming a bigger organization with you know a whole group of kids leading the way i i see native futures becoming like a microsoft or a google in a sense of helping people being that one to that go-to place where people know that they can get help people know that they will get genuine help from people that care about them and want nothing but the best from them so I've, i have a lot of work to do in these next three years but i see this goal as very doable and I see it as something that will happen and people listening yes I don't know where your audience is from but you will see Native Futures and you will recognize it and you will know us that we are people here to help you know but, but, but the biggest thing that that I'm the most proud of is is being an owner of an actual drive-in movie theater <laughs> yeah yeah and you know how that came about was the the, the theater here um, we, we go to church with the theater owners, but we didn't really know them, you know? And, and of course we, we, we went to the movies like four or five times a month. So a couple of years ago, a job opportunity came up and I'm already working all these other jobs and contracts, 
But I told my wife, like, hey, there's a job at the movie theater. I, I want to work there. I want to work at the movie theater. And she was like, no, you're not. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply. So I was like, ah, all right. You know, reluctantly, I gave up my dream of working in a movie theater to her. And, and she started working there, and she got to know them. And the, the drive-in was for sale a couple years ago, but we didn't, we didn't act on it. We wanted it. And, and we, di we did make contact with the owners because uh, the movie theater owners here, they, they own part of it, but the other owners are in Lincoln as well. So we made contact with the Lincoln owners about it, but nothing came from it. Like they, they didn't call us back or anything. So my wife continued to work at the movie theater and it came up in conversation that the city of Alliance was going to charge them $30,000 to tear down the drive-in because it's be, it was because it was unkept and and they're they're older owners so they're not able they weren't able to run a movie theater and a drive-in at the same time so the drive-in hasn't been open since the summer of 2015 i believe was their last summer we told them and made them an offer that you know we we would like to buy the drive-in from you because the theater owner here him and his dad built it like it was just them two with a couple of people but but they have a vested interest in it it's a piece of them. It's a part of their heart. And when they heard that the city wanted it torn down, you know, they were, they were sad about it. The guy was sad about it. So I, I wanted to buy it, for one, to keep it open, but at the same time, because of that sentimental value to the, the theater owner, I mean, him and his dad built it. You know, I, I would feel the same way if me and my dad built something like that. So we bought it. it it's still, you know, the, the, the grass was like four feet tall. You know, it's, it's eight acres, so we spent well over two weeks mowing that down, painting the poles. We had to get up there and fix the screen, you know, find a projector, learn, learn the entire movie business and how to contact people because there are bookers out there who would do it for you, but we want to do it ourselves. So we, we contacted the studios, Paramount and, you know, Sony and all these other people and got contracts with them to show, to license their movies. You know, then we had to find the projector to do it and figure out things like ratios and throw distances and, and, and all of that. And then, you know, fix up the concession stand. But now we have it fully operational. We have the projectors. We have everything going. We have our painted poles. We even have the old speakers that you hang on your windows. We have our entire first two rows done. And I'm working on the third row. And, and I'm hoping to get at least 100 more speakers up. Because that, that's all a part of a drive-in experience. For me, a real drive-in, you have to have the speakers. You have to have the you know, parking ramps as well. You know, so for me, you know, I, I want to operate an, an authentic drive-in movie theater. And we still have our 35-millimeter projectors. So a couple of weeks ago, the old owner came out and taught me how to run them. So this upcoming week, we're hoping to run Grease on 35 millimeter film using the old projectors. My guest today has been Edison Redness III. 
founder of Native Futures and Native Dreams. He joined me via Zoom as he was traveling amidst the sand hills in Western Nebraska. Edison, thank you so much for being on the show and uh, sharing what you've been doing and what your hopes are. So thank you. Yes, thank you very much for having me. It was, it was nice to talk to you again. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.